relationship triangle, which is the result of a conversation that took place on July 22, 2017, with the children's ministry team, the youth ministry team, the adult discipleship team, and the church's learning change team. In this conversation, we wondered about two questions. What is discipleship? And what are North Holland's core values of discipleship? Each ministry team was given time to address those questions and more specifically to wonder what their role is in assuring that these core discipleship values are taught or modeled for the children, youth, and adults each team oversees and works with. Both the Great Commission spoken by Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this quote from Chris Shirley inspired their conversation. The quote says this, The common teaching is that a Christian is someone who by faith accepts Jesus as Savior, receives eternal life, and is safe and secure in the family of God. A Christian. A disciple, however, is a more serious Christian, active in the practice of the spiritual disciplines and engaged in evangelizing and training others. But I must be blunt. I find no biblical evidence for the separation of Christian from disciple. Everyone who expresses faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior becomes a disciple and by implication begins a lifelong spirit-led journey of growth and formation in the likeness of the one whom they follow. Our children, youth, and adult ministry teams worked really hard that day to answer big questions that the people of God have been asking for a long time. These questions are massive and have been addressed by different leaders and teams at North Holland before. That's why the words Bible-centered, prayer, sharing Jesus, growth in Christ, and heart for service are printed in the bottom left corner of your announcements, if you've noticed that. That's why the words witness, I think it's invite, and nourish, invite, and nourish, are displayed above the entrance to the sanctuary, if you've noticed that before. It's why the words come to worship, leave to serve are printed in the narthex, and why our capital campaign was given the name Reach Out. The three biggest values that emerged at our meeting last July were identity, scripture, and mission. Identity, scripture, and mission, all connected by hospitality, belonging, and equipping. This morning, we'll reflect on hospitality as God presents it, a reality in which God desires to be intensely present with the people, to make a home among them, and for the people to reciprocate that desire. Our passage this morning picks up at a tense moment between God, Moses, and the people. God's people are frustrated that it's taking so long for Moses to return from an extended conversation with God about the law and the book of the covenant. And so they go to Aaron, desperate for a different God. Under Aaron's instruction, they gather all their gold earrings and fashion the golden calf to worship and offer sacrifices to. 
Exodus 33 opens with God's ongoing disappointment of the stiff-necked people who are quick to forget all that God has done and promised. Our text this morning begins with Moses returning to the tent of meeting to face God again. Before we turn to that text, would you pray with me? Teach us your way, O Lord. Lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. May we keep them to the end. Give us understanding, and we will keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Friends, let's turn together to Exodus 33, beginning with verse 7 and going through the end of that chapter to verse 23. Exodus is pretty close to the beginning of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 33, starting with the seventh verse. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, All the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people? On the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. This is a strange and amazing passage before us this morning. This text is one of several recorded instances in Exodus where Moses and God have a face-to-face conversation, another intense dialogue between two passionate characters who are seeking to know one another better in covenant relationship. But this is probably not the passage any of us would turn to if we were wondering what the Bible says about hospitality. When we think of hospitality, we often think of inviting people to our homes, noticing guests at church, being kind to strangers. We're right to reference those examples because the definition of hospitality is the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. North Holland, in its mission statement, adds that our hospitality should be compassion-filled and that through compassion-filled hospitality, others can experience the love of Jesus. Pastor Stephen has expressed hope that our church will be a place where the hungry are fed and the lonely find fellowship. This requires taking on a posture of hospitality, inviting the hungry and the lonely to be with us, noticing the hungry or the lonely among us, those in need of hospitality. It's interesting that hospitality matters so much to this church and to the church when the word itself doesn't make much of an appearance in the English Bible. It shows up ten times exclusively in the New Testament. Seven times in the form hospitality, three times in the form hospitable. For example, from Romans 12, 13, when Paul is talking about love and action, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Or from Titus 1, 8, when elders are being described, he or she must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Ten times this word shows up in Scripture. Of course, just because the word hospitality doesn't show up in the Old Testament doesn't mean that the concept of hospitality is not present in it. The classic example of hospitality in the Old Testament comes from Genesis 18, when Abraham hosts three men in his home eagerly offering them the best of his bread, of his calves, of his milk, of his shade. The object of Abraham's hospitality in Genesis 18 is not a neighbor. It's not a stranger, who in the Old Testament represents a person who doesn't have a residence. It's not a foreigner. The object of Abraham's hospitality is a group of travelers. In fact, hospitality was always extended to travelers in the Old Testament, and only for short periods of time. Hospitality was never extended to those who had temporary or permanent residence, and certainly not to foreigners. It was only offered to those passing through. We turn to Exodus 33 to learn more about hospitality this morning, because through the story of Exodus, God is teaching the people that as the creator of the universe, he is the host. We are travelers. 
in the land. In fact, God calls the people foreigners several times, and the psalmist even identifies himself as a foreigner in Psalm 39. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. God is the host. And God says to the people, the land is mine. You resign as foreigners, as strangers. In Psalm 39, the psalmist writes, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Unlike the travelers from Genesis 18, God's intent is not that the people would stay for a short while, but that they would dwell with God and be his people because we all bear his image. In addition, their right to be, to be welcome in God's home was not dependent on their own behavior or worthiness, but on God's faithfulness and desire to dwell among them. God says this loud and clear in Exodus 29, 46. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I am the host. They are my people. The whole point of God delivering Israel was to make it possible for God to be close and near. The first half of Exodus, chapters 1 to 18, tell the story of God rescuing the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh and offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God brings the people out of Egypt over the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and as a result, they grumble and complain, dissatisfied by what their host has provided. The second half of Exodus, chapters 19 through 40, narrate the push and pull between God and the people. The Israelites agree to the terms of the covenant, but really struggle to abide by those terms. Exodus 25 through 31 and 35 through 40 are exclusively devoted to God's instruction concerning the building of the tabernacle. So clearly God is serious about creating a home in the midst of the people, but it's the people who wrestle with their commitment. They get on board with the vision that God is creating, one where Israel is shaped into a nation of justice and generosity through the Ten Commandments and the other 52 commands God lays out in Exodus 21 to 23. But they're impatient in this foreign land and seek out Aaron for a quick fix, the golden calf. You could read Exodus 32 to see God's response, but it's not good. This is where our story picks up, and it's a mess. God knows the people have already rebelled against the first two commands. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols and worship them. Moses knows it too. It's like hosting a dinner party, asking your guests to bring the salad or dessert and remove their shoes when they enter your home, and instead they track in mud and eat all your food. Except this story is a lot worse, with much bigger consequences. The golden calf story is such a clear violation of what God is expecting, so much so that God admits at the end of Exodus 32, he wants out of the covenant and might not be able to go with the people 
in the opening verses of Exodus 33. God is hurt by their actions. And Moses knows that and chooses to approach God and the strength of God's promises from Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with a genuine desire to know God more deeply. Moses says this to God in our passage. God, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. God needs more assurance, though, in Exodus 33, 14. It's not as obvious uh, in our English translation, but it is obvious in the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the phrase with you is not included. God promises that his presence will go, but God doesn't say in what capacity his presence will go. Will he be in front of, alongside, behind? What's the deal? So Moses says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we might as well not go anywhere at all. For the sake of the well-being of your people and because we are supposed to be a blessing to the nations according to what you said, you have to go with us. We messed up, but we're still your people. It's in this moment, this very tense moment, that our great God of integrity chooses to match the rebellion of the people with vulnerability. You know I love that word, vulnerability. Where God has the right to withdraw hospitality because the boundaries of the agreement have not been respected. God instead makes moves toward rebuilding the broken covenant. God's deepest desire is to be our Emmanuel, God with us to host the people. Instead of walking away or withdrawing, God shares more of who he is in verse 19. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You may recognize that rhythm or cadence from Exodus 3.14 when God first reveals his name to Moses. God says, I am who I am. Otherwise translated, I will be who I will be. And in our passage this morning, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When God first introduces himself in Exodus 3, it's unclear what God is like. That's true whenever we introduce ourselves to anyone. When all you know about someone is their name, you don't know what they're like. Moses probably assumed that the being speaking to him from a burning bush in Exodus 3 was probably not human, probably powerful, and had been following the plight of the enslaved Israelites for a while, but he didn't know what God's intentions were, and he does express some confusion about God's motive. It's through building the relationship, establishing the covenant, breaking the covenant, and rebuilding the covenant that Moses comes to know who God is. God will be who God will be, and that's got a lot to do with mercy and compassion. And it's with mercy and compassion that God responds to the Israelites. God begins a descent in the story of Exodus, a descent to be with the people. And that descent ultimately culminates in the incarnation, as written in John 1.14. The Word, Jesus, 
became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Exodus 33, in this moment where God shows up in the tent of meeting, immediately following the people's betrayal, and in the Gospels, when God shows up in Jesus Christ to tabernacle among us, and after Jesus' ascension, when the Spirit shows up, so that we foreigners might never be alone in this life, we get a glimpse of the hospitality we must create in our relationships, a hospitality that dares to live face-to-face. When we consider an invitation to hospitality, I wonder if we remember this story, the story of a God who dwells among us in real time, responding to us in real time, deeply longing for us to dwell with him, even in the midst of rebellion. I wonder how this hospitable invitation translates to how we talk about one another, how we address one another, what we expect of one another. I wonder how this invitation to hospitality impacts how we forgive one another. When we show mercy and compassion to one another, I wonder what this story can teach us about what God expects of us. This is an artistic rendition of the tent of meeting outside the camp. From verse 5 to 11, the pillar of cloud, a person bowing before it. There's a person in the tent on a sort of a rug, if you can't see that. This illustration represents an open invitation. You are welcomed to come back to this place, to worship, to confess, to inquire of the Lord. So go there, especially if, like the people, you're in the desert. Whether it's in personal devotional time, in youth group, with your life group, Remember that the creator of the universe offers you rest. That is the hospitable invitation. Before we close, there is a contradiction. <clears throat> that sounded like a nervous throat clear, but it, I just legitimately needed to clear my throat. Uh, there is a contradiction in this passage that's important to address, and that's this. From verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then God says, you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. My face must not be seen. I'll admit I'm not totally clear on how to hold these two passages together. But one could, one could suggest that face to face in verse 11 does not literally mean face-to-face, but perhaps serves as a metaphor for the honesty and directness Moses and God display in their conversations, sort of a tell-it-to-me-straight situation. Or it could be that they were just physically near one another, as verse 7 to 11 describe, without literally looking into each other's eyes. Regardless, there is some mystery here that Professor Dennis Olson, who is a professor of Old Testament theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, he articulates this mystery well. He writes this. Even Moses will not see or know, 
all there is to know about God. This is an amazing and unprecedented encounter between a human and God, but a part of God's ways, glory, goodness, and name will remain unknown, unseen. Dimensions of God's ways in the world will remain mysterious, elusive, and incomprehensible. What we do know of God's supreme love and mercy, however, is sufficient for the journey to continue. As we continue to reflect on God's hospitality and what that means for us, I'd like to offer up a prayer inspired by Psalm 103. As I read it, you're welcome to close your eyes and to receive the words. And notice with me when Moses and this story are referenced and the psalmist's response of praise for God's compassionate graciousness. What a joy it is to know how profoundly God sees us, forgives us, and loves us. So pray with me. Holy God, we praise you. With all our inmost being, we praise your holy name and remember all your benefits. You forgive all our sins and heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from the pit and crown us with love and compassion. You satisfy our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. God, you work righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. You made known your ways to Moses and your deeds to the people of Israel. Lord, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You will not always accuse, nor will you harbor anger forever. You do not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. For this we are thankful, and for this we are inspired. In your holy name we pray, amen.